Welcome to the 91 Untold Change Project. I'm Neil Armand, uh, your host for today. And with me in the 91 Untold studio is Kevin Watson. Uh, we invited Kevin to be here today probably because he's one of the finest thinkers we know around organizations. He's equally modest as well, so he probably won't claim that for himself. Uh, but he's a former operations director at Selfridges, was part of the, the turnaround team there and has been head of customer service. And we just really feel that he has some, some interesting thoughts to make. Equally as a, a quite accomplished coach and executive coach. So very experienced on working with someone on a one-to-one -one level, also organizational design. And I know from all of my conversations with Kevin in the past, has a real passion for how the world could be, which is of course a, a key part of the change project. Uh, so hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the 91 Untold Change Project. The whole universe is in a state of entropy. If you can unlock that higher motivation, they'll be with you. How can you create an environment where people can find meaning at work? That can create the needed culture change. How does radical change happen? You know it's a good business. In terms of our evolution, we were not required to have a conscious understanding of complex systems. What creates great innovation in the social arena? It does it you taking action. Have some real sense of control over our lives. Kevin, welcome. Thank you. <clears throat> good to be here. One of the things that I've heard you talking about quite a lot recently is occupational philosophy. Um, what does that mean to you? I know you, you've got a passion for different ways of, of businesses working. Uh, is that contained within that? Well, <clears throat> now there's a story. So, <laughs> so settle back and, uh, and close your eyes and, and take a listen. So occupational philosophy came from conversations that I've been having for the last 15 years since I left organization work. <clears throat> and one of the reasons I left organizations was I wasn't being fulfilled by organization work. Uh, I didn't like the way I was managed oftentimes. I didn't like the way organizations went about things. I didn't like the hierarchy. I didn't like the politics. Lots of things I didn't like about it. Um, but I didn't know what to do to put that right at that time, uh, other than standard change practices that have been around for many years. Um, so in conversations, a bit like 17th century coffee conversations that changed the world, I've had many coffee conversations that haven't yet changed the world, uh, <laughs> but they, for me, hinted perhaps on some of the changes that could be made if people were to embrace those. And so with several different people, the term occupational philosophy emerged as a way of describing new thoughts, new designs, new models, new frameworks, new thinking around how organisations should work to provide places where people go and, and have enjoyment and fulfillment in what they do rather than feeling as though they're still tied to old ways of working, factory type working and factory type working principles. <clears throat> so it emerged from that, it's kind of growing a little bit in the last few months in terms of uh, a, a place that people can join in discussions mm. and highlight new ways of thinking uh, that has just started on LinkedIn uh, and will be soon have a website and soon start to engage even more with the world. But at the moment it's about 180 people that are live with those discussions and hoping to grow that a little bit more in the coming months and next year. My thought and my idea will be to have some kind of festival, some kind of place where people can come and share ideas and exchange ideas and engage with ideas from others on how we should be challenging some of the things that we do in organizations right now where one group of people might be doing that but not many uh, it's not growing quite as uh, as quickly as one might have thought for example performance management still doing appraisals every 12 months and um, because that's the way we see to do things rather than is it actually having any impact okay. on our workforce. So well, while we're there, how could that be different? How could that work more effectively? Well, so uh, frankly, stop doing the appraisals because they're a waste of time, <laughs> really. I mean, in my career, I had three, I think, in the, a career that spanned 25 years. Um, three of any note, I may have had some more, but the only ones I remember three. One was written and given to me. Yeah. One that was a discussion, uh, and then I found out afterwards on a 360-degree feedback that the discussion was uh, um, 
out of line with the 360 degree feedback from my line manager. Uh, and the third one was a conversation which had some impact, um, but not long lasting. Okay. And so it didn't really have a great deal. What I do remember are the conversations that I had with people that helped me recalibrate, rethink the way that I was working so that I could perform better. And they could have been with colleagues, they could have been with line managers, they could have been with people that are called direct reports. <clears throat> um, but, they, but the important thing is the conversation. So how do you how do you make those conversations work? Because one of the, one of the arguments for appraisals is that managers don't have those conversations, and that a regular appraisal forces them to have a conversation of sorts. So how can you embed those conversations in a way that actually achieves what you're talking about? Well, if I had the answer to that, I'd probably be going around to organisations and giving them that. Um, <laughs> that brief. So there is no, I don't think there is an easy answer to say you do this, other than within um, the whole system, within the whole um, environment, there needs to be lots of different changes in, in the way that we think. So one obvious example for me is have people that conduct those conversations, that know it's a conversation with purpose and have a conversation that is meaningful rather than a conversation because HR says you have to have one yeah. every six to 12 months. Um, to have conversations that are more purposeful on outcome rather than purposeful on what's happened on reflection, which tends to be what happens in appraisals is appraising what's happened previously rather than looking forward to what outcomes are desired what outcomes are needed. So <clears throat> lots of different elements, I guess, within the system need to be changed, not least of all, who do we hire as people to have those conversations? Is the line manager the right person to have them? In, right. in the current environment, I'd suggest perhaps not, um, because they don't tend to be well equipped to have those conversations. Is that because the people we employ as line managers on the whole aren't focused on that, or is it because that role is the wrong role to have well, I think those it, conversations. So I think it's pretty well known and a, a kind of common wisdom, if you like, that line managers are generally promoted because they've been good at the job they were good at before. I think it's called the, mm. is it called the Peter Principle. Yes. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> where you kind of reach a level of incompetence. And, 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 you know, people are generally promoted into managerial positions, leadership positions, because of they were good as a welder or good as a fitter or good as a retailer rather than good as a leader or good as a manager and maybe it's time to rethink that role as a specialist role rather than a, a, a more um, <clears throat> lateral increasing role as you go through some career ladder so what is it that we need for that leadership role that's different to the role previous and think okay. about a different way of recruiting into those so is that almost having leadership coaches as opposed to managers or yeah, something yeah. like that yeah, yeah for sure Again, you know, I'm going to be biased because I'm a coach. New business for us. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, uh, you know, generally, I think it's an accepted that the coaching style is at this moment in time one of the better styles, if not the best style in leadership in yeah. organisations. Uh, who knows whether there's a different or a blend of different. And, of course, it's always important to have a, a flexibility of leadership style. Don't just stay with coaching. There are times where you need to be autocratic and if it's a fire, you want to get people out. So mm. you don't want to coach them out. So you need to have a, a, a variance of style, but coaching is generally accepted, I think, as being the most uh, progressive, the most uh, valuable style to have as a leader. And so I would certainly advocate a more coaching style. And, and the coaching style I'm talking about, I guess, and this is seeding back to your first question, how do you get this into organisations? is perhaps get people to be more curious, to be more, yeah. uh, <clears throat> to ask questions, to challenge and support those people around them to perform better than they're performing right now. Okay, that's interesting because the solution a lot of organisations have put in place to this challenge is to train people as coaches and put them through a, I don't know, level seven ILM coaching course or, or, or something like that it hasn't changed the behaviours. So how do you change the behaviour of a, a man? I mean, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying is to some degree don't just employ the right people for the, the role who have those skills. But if you've got a workforce and want to work within HR laws and things like that, what could you do more that, that helps build that curiosity, get people asking questions, get them to an outcome thinking and to effectively challenge, which is some of the things you said there? 
So as you're talking, lots of different ideas <coughs> spring into my mind, as you might expect from me, um, <laughs> and knowing me for the time we have known each other. And what was going through my mind was that there's probably not one answer, but the answer probably lies in, uh, is are people, <coughs> are leaders and coaches made or are they um, born? And, and I don't know the answer to that. And I suspect there's a blend of both. And you probably need to find the people that have some natural tendency towards being curious and towards asking questions and not being um, mm. advice givers. <clears throat> and generally, I'd say they're probably in a minority from my experience. Most people still like to give advice. They've been conditioned to give advice. They've been conditioned not to be curious, if you like, from quite an early age. And there's a right or wrong way of doing things from a very early age. So I think seek out the people that have some natural tendency or demonstrating some of those behaviours and then build on those behaviours rather than try and change someone who's been deep-rooted in a behaviour for many, many, many years. I personally think they've probably been made in that and they need to unlearn, Yeah. but that can take some time. And far better for people that are more open and have some level of competence already. And they may not be managers. They may be somewhere else in the organisation. Okay. So if... And let's assume somebody is a new leader coming into a team or is an entrepreneur even starting a new team around a venture. What could they do to set this up in a way that that would work differently? I mean, I suppose there's a question if you were to be running a team again, um, what would you do differently that would would enable things to work differently? Um, <clears throat> well, again, that's quite difficult for me to answer because I probably would um, say that I'm more likely to ask one of my team to find someone that can coach them in terms of their performance, as well as me as their manager, as leader, helping them, so, which I did do when I was in organisation yeah. work. I got people to think past line manager, to think of other people that may stretch and uh, help and support their, their performance. <clears throat> so there's, there's, what's going through my mind is there's probably a dependency on someone, whether it be the line manager or whether it be someone in the organisation, to facilitate people thinking a little bit differently outside of the line, the, the <clears throat> line management line, if you like, in organisations that still exist, to think about the full resources of the full population of an organisation yeah. and the network of an organisation and key into that network and that community in order to support the individual needs performance needs and therefore the organization needs does that make sense it, do, it, it makes a lot of sense but and i'm going to push you even further <laughs> on it so how would you do that you're, you're talking is it a specific person or you know you're starting a new team bringing something together is that a role is it a, a or is it a you find people within an organization with those strengths and then give that to them as part of what they do or how do you map those networks you're talking about i'm trying to get into the the applied how-to of this because i want it to happen in organizations i want people to be able to listen to this and, and think about well what could i actually do to get closer to that rather than just go yeah that's that's the right way of doing it and move on my answer is probably not going to be palatable to a lot of people because <laughs> my my belief is, uh, and I probably was a little bit like this when I was a leader from time to time, was I like to create some chaos in order for to something new to form. Uh, and I'm not sure you can recreate something from what's available now without creating some chaos and almost forcing people, and a bit like you just been forcing me, to think a bit deeper and a bit... Uh, and a bit more critically about what needs to happen. And so there's almost, I probably want to get rid of all structures within organisations for a period of time and say to people, come on, then let's work out how, what's the best way to do this. Now, <clears throat> there have been some experiments, some social experiments, some business experiments that kind of influenced my thinking in this, not least of all um, the guy from uh, Pimlico Plumbers, I think, oh, yeah. who, who did the exercise on payroll uh, and let everyone know what everyone was earning and just said there's no more money reconfigure make sure you kind of organize it yourselves and we'll see what happens now it was a television program i don't know what's happened subsequently um but it seemed to work out in some way yeah. because people got around it and worked it out in some way without it being directed in any firm shape or, or form 
Um, there's been an example of uh, a guy called Dr. Paul Thomas who did a, a program years ago called Ban the Boss, where he went into Blind and went cancel, and uh, with his proposition of getting rid of management. Okay. And uh, and from that chaos of not having managers, one particular department which stood out for me um, turned it themselves around from being a cost centre to a profit centre by opening its doors to um, give MOTs to the public. So <clears throat> so there's for me there's a how do you create a space by getting rid of the rules so that new guides, not I wouldn't want to say rules, but new guides, new new ways of working could emerge. But I don't know. I don't know the answer of what they are. Yeah. I think the people that work in an organisation would know what they are um, if they were given that opportunity. Well, they real... wouldn't know up here. Yeah. I think, you know, if you asked them, they wouldn't be able to articulate that. But working together, they could work out a better way of organising themselves around the organisation's purpose. Which, after all, is what an organisation is. It's just a bunch of people gathered round a purpose. And I, I really like that, and it, it matches a lot of our views on the topic. How would you counter to people who are like, you can't just get rid of the rules and throw that away people will take advantage and you know just award themselves massive salaries or you know a skate park or or whatever how do you is, is your belief that actually all organizations actually if you gave them that chance would do that and it's inherently human to be able to do that or is that about the value base of of that particular group of people any thoughts on on that or countering that challenge? I'm not sure uh, one size fits all for all organisations, which is which is which tends to be what we do at the moment. We say that organisations need to be organised in this way. In organisational structures, they need to be organised in this way. So through management, spanner control, they need to be organised in this way. And, and this way is a way that has existed for probably 100 mm. years, uh, you know, in 1918. Um, we were still organising organisations the way we're organising today, by by large, and and the world has changed significantly in that time. So I believe that the, the time's right to change it. How mm. it should change, and for each individual organisation, I think will be different. I don't think today's world is a one-size-fits-all organisational structure or organisational concept or theory or whatever you want to call it. I think that. And I believe that all organisations need a way of working that fits them and their way of being and their culture and their value that they're proposing to their communities, to their customers, whoever it might be. And, and for some, that might be still a traditional. For factory work, for example, where things need to be repeated day in and day out in the same way, then perhaps with little adaptation, what's happening now may be still fit for purpose because that's really what it was designed for in the first place. But for other businesses, digital, creative uh, organisations, I'm not sure that's the right way of doing it. And you know, least of all, if you consider that you know, jobs that people are going into leaving school didn't exist when they entered school, yeah. is how can you in the next five years, with some degree of confidence um, have an organization that is fit for those five years without disrupting it every few years because new jobs are emerging <laughs> and that's what happens at the moment and I'm working with several organizations at the moment that are going through their third change of structure in the last 18 months I mean it's ridiculous how disruptive is that yeah and I think that's and that's one of the reasons for the change project in our mind is we don't understand that change mm. we're excited by it in many ways and terrified by it in equal measure. Mm. I mean, you mentioned the, that level of change and the, the industry's business models are becoming obsolete overnight. Obviously, part of your background with Selfridges was in, in retail. What do you think in terms of the future? Um, what do you think, which organisations do you think are going to be obsolete or which careers are, are going to be changing in the next five or ten years or are there industries that are, are going to be massively different? Uh, what, what are your thoughts about the way things are going? Obviously AI is coming and various different bits and pieces, but what's your pulse on the ground <coughs> thought? 
Well, I don't know the art. Again, it's no really easy answer to that is if I had a crystal ball, <laughs> I'd be making lots of money, I'm sure. I think the only true thing to say is that it will be very, very different from what it is today. And for example, I was reading something the other day, and I think it was Amazon and Netflix that it was citing, is who would have thought five years ago that Amazon and Netflix would be competitors? You know, they're two very different businesses five years ago, and now they're in the same space. Uh, and so there's more and more organizations that are questioning who they are who they've been who they need to be mm. in order to make that change or adapt to or disrupt the market that they're in and uh, so i i you know with the sense of ai coming in and and uh, augmented reality and all those kind of digital disruptions it's going to be a completely different landscape in five years time who will survive i think very retail space i think writing's on the wall for a number of them already so um and i i I would be concerned about debenhams for example be concerned about marks and spencer we're not talking about small names i'm saying big names household names i think i'd be worried about them i mean just something out today about um a witch report on the website um, experience for retailers and home base is the was the worst performer. Yes, home base isn't going to be around for much longer. I wouldn't think if it's that the case. It's already going through a change with half their stores closing. I mean, how much longer before they disappear altogether? So, I, I think that one sure thing is some of the real household names we know now, not just in retail but in other industries, will not be here in five ten years. And jobs and organisations that we see now may well have shifted and changed their market, their approach, their their width, their bandwidth of what yeah. they're offering. So, what do organisations need to do to prepare for that? If you know somebody is a chief exec or running an organisation right now, <clears throat> what questions should they be asking themselves, or what should they be looking at that helps them remain current or relevant in five years' time? Um, so, interestingly, I've just, from a professional point of view, I've just been running a high potential leadership program that ended up with a seminar. This was on behalf of another company, a seminar on disruptive leadership in a digital age. And um, what I came to think about with that, combined with some other work that I've recently been doing uh, down at the university, was thinking about how businesses look at their business model and do they disrupt internally to respond to the disruption outside or do they act as a disruptor themselves and I think more and more organizations need to consider how they can act as a disruptor themselves and Mm -hmm. I say that because it puts them on the front foot rather than continually changing and reconfiguring their organization to match something which probably will be out of date in five years time or have moved on in five years time so be more progressive I think would be my response to that in how they disrupt themselves the market that they're in rather than just disrupting their internal organization interesting yeah it brings to mind that that quote don't seek to follow in the footsteps of the masters seek what they sought and i'm hearing in what you're saying that if you're just going oh what's amazon doing right now what let's let's copy them you're probably way behind the ball yeah, because Amazon would have moved on, or someone similar would have taken up Amazon space. Yes. Whilst Amazon had been complacent about something else. So, so you know, the, the, it's so fast-paced, and that disruption and that different way that markets are working, different way that we as consumers behave and organisation B2B is behaving, it's, it's, you can't stand still. and you, it's, I think it's increasingly more difficult to only react to the changes that are happening around you. You almost need to proactively change stuff yeah. uh, and that might be the way you configure your own business model and the way you might kind of present that out to the world or you may that you look at the market and say there's an opportunity if we did something different to to capitalize now on on what's happening mm. and so you know if that's if that's what we need to do to prepare for the the future as an organization what can individuals do to prepare for the journey ahead, which may be a little bit bumpy at times. Yeah, I think, well, there's, um, people don't like change really, do they? So I don't think anyone can ever say, embrace the change and you'll be fine. I think it's always gonna be a realistic point of view which says that, you know, we know we don't like change, but in order to 
stay ahead of the market, let's stay ahead of our competitors, stay ahead of what we ourselves want to be doing to fulfil ourselves, there's a need to continually reinvent, continually re-energise ourselves and, and the people that work with us. <clears throat> I think there's um, a mindset change that needs to happen in, in the way that we view work and this again is influenced by my own my own sense of the world and my own history of the world uh, in moving away from an organisation to being freelance is um, maybe we don't think of work in the same way as transactional we go in and we get paid for doing something that we look at more community based and social type working rather than I'm going to work there for the next three years is I'm going to work there on a project and after that I'll work on another project somewhere else and I'll continue to build my skills and my mastery and what I really love doing and there's a number of different environments I can exercise that in. So there's a different way that perhaps we should be seeding back at school mm. what vocation might look like, what work might look like in the future rather than still perpetuating the myth that you go to work for an organisation and get employed for it by an organisation. And in order to do that I guess there's a whole load of stuff that needs to be changed around employee law and so still protect the individuals that don't want to be employed, and there's a growing number of people who don't want that, still protect them, but try and um, create the rules that enable people to be more portfolio-based, agnostic in the way that they work. Yeah, it's interesting. You talked earlier about Pimlico plumbers, and recently they've been in the news um, with a, a challenge with one of their former employees in this whole debate about whether somebody is an employee or whether they're a, a, a contractor to the the organization and what the different perks and opportunities are in that space so i think there definitely is some work to do i think it's charlie the head guy at pimlico mm. like um was was saying was well, hang on a minute this guy got a quarter of a million pounds or oh, it might have been more uh, but the reason for that was he didn't have these perks, so I think there is something interesting to do in that space. If you were, a, if you were a lawmaker um, with your magic wand, as we start <laughs> a brand new political party and and take over the world, whatever it is, what would you bring in in around HR that enabled? I mean, without obviously going into the the micro depth, but broadly, how do you think that could be facilitated? That people can have more flexibility and work in different ways while still being protected. So I think it kind of goes back to, our, again, our education from parents, from teachers, from schooling, from university through to organisations is have a different sense of what work should be and what we should expect from work. Um, I think the old transactional, you know, I go to work for an employer and you know, dot my cap and, and do my work is is starting to seed away. There's still people that might be suited to that and might want to have that, understand that, and that should still be provided in some way. But I think there's a, not only that, there's also coming to my mind the, you know, the reason that Charlie, the Pimlico stuff happened was about tax, income tax, yeah. corporation tax. There's a way of how do we get some contribution from those people that are freelance into society and how do we make sure those people are protected in some way <clears throat> um, in society from abuse of people that are just using them and paying them not so much money that they should be or not recognizing that i can't be there all the time in some way yeah <clears throat> i think we've we've kind of gone to a place as an employee where we think we have a right to sick pay a right to holiday pay um and, uh, and to a certain extent, that may be right. I can't, I'm not totally up to speed with employment law, but holiday was discretionary at one point. Sick pay there is a statutory, but there's, over that it's still discretionary, I believe. <clears throat> um, and so, but we have a, an entitlement sense that's been taught in our youth, in our childhood and through our youth, particularly it's documented millennials. If you believe the millennial, millennial stuff, there's a sense of entitlement been um, educated, been passed on, that I don't think is there and shouldn't be there. There should be a sense of I'm here to get worth and value from uh, what I do with people around me and to contribute to people around me. And, and both need yes. to be in play. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> uh, and interesting that there's a parallel there with what you were saying earlier 
around the chaos that you'd create in an organization. And my question is, well, how could that work? There's almost something similar here. Um, if there is that sense of entitlement, it makes that, that freeing up of the hierarchical organization far harder. Mm. Mm. Yeah. There's always going to be a tension, I think, between, you know, I expect something from my employer to I'm going to contribute something to my employer. And I think at the moment, I believe, that it's probably gone to too much entitlement. So <clears throat> I'm working uh, with a company on their graduate scheme, their leadership scheme. This year, not so bad, but the past two years, <clears throat> there has been at least one or two people within that cohort that have come in expecting the organization to provide everything for them. Mm. And recently I did some work with lecturers at University of Wales who were giving all the answers to their students because their students were paying money to be be qualified rather than to learn. And so this kind of goes back and then back to school, what's happening at school to get that sense of entitlement, to get that sense of I'm owed something when I go into organisation. For me, it needs to be rebalanced because when I started work, that wasn't tends to be what was there. It was what have I got to do for the employer when I go in, which I equally don't think is right. <laughs> yeah. Because um, that can be subservient in some ways. <clears throat> but there is an exchange. What's the fair exchange and work that out? What's the contract with a small c, not the legal contract that one goes into when one works? And how can that be more voluntary, progressive, collaborative, rather than just standard? <clears throat> Yeah, there's a, an idea, isn't there, that um, one way of looking at employment is as self-employed. Imagine you're self-employed. Yeah. It's just the company you're working for at the moment is your biggest customer. Yeah. And it, it does change the perception about the way you treat them and yeah. develop within them. Yeah. And I think that's quite useful. Yeah. No, I'd say that's already in place, but people haven't caught on to it yet. Yes. So, I, I, you know, I often, when I'm working with leaders, one of the things I'm working with when I'm coaching them is to do influence. And how do you influence and impact around people? And people are so used to managing by authority, by the stripes they've got on their mm. arms or on pips on their shoulder by managing by authority that they're not very good at marketing themselves internally in the organization. And therefore, one of many things happens. One, if I'm a leader, I don't get people following me because I'm too busy reverting to authority. And two, if I'm just the normal Joe, <clears throat> um, I get overlooked for the great work I'm producing. And when it comes down to redundancy, I'm probably going to be one of those that's wasted because no one knows what I do. Yes. So the, the need for people to be self-marketeers like a, a freelance or a self-employed person is already there in order to make sure you've got some long-term value from the organisation you're working with. Otherwise, you will be overlooked. I really like that. And it really resonates. So there's, there's something here as well as organisation as change agent you know, what are your views around the role that business has in terms of social change, be that around the people within the organization, their customers, or, or, or the wider community? Any thoughts there about the role business can play? Well, I think there's a huge role they can play, <laughs> <laughs> in yes. whether they want to or not. <laughs> right. Because again, there's a, you know, there's as much you can do as an individual, as much you can do as a team, as much you can do as an organization, there's a whole system out there that um, is probably the best that we've had so far, but not necessarily the best that could be. And I am, I'm not bright enough to think about what the next system might be. So you've got an addition to the radio coming across and they were talking about um, fixed odd betting machines, I think they're called, <clears throat> and how there's no real appetite to curb the use of those and cap the spend on those by government because government are being seen, allegedly, government are being seen to support the organisations that are putting fixed bet in. So you've got organisations that want to capitalise and make the most money for their shareholders mm. in the short term against social and environmental issues. On the other hand, um, there's a tension, I think, and the capitalist society, and I'm not a communist, but the capitalist society, um, tends to support that greed that may pop up from some. Now there's, I hope, because I'm 
um, an idealist that they're in the minority. <clears throat> yes. And we hear about those more than the other organisations that are doing great work already in helping to change the environment to produce something that, or to um, contribute something to changing and shaping the world in the way that is going to be better. But, it, but, I, but I'm not sure they're having as much effect. So it's almost like yeah. the, the big ones might be the more um, ill-advised, I wouldn't say corrupt, but ill-advised in, in their short-termist shareholder profit mm. generating and how much they're actually focused on sustainability, environmental, social issues, I'm not so sure. So is there another path? I mean, is it, is it about, you know, some people who say well, capitalism will sort itself out. Is there a different path that... You know, if you were to reinvent the system, uh, for instance, you know, how would you do that? Again, I'm asking you a lot of political questions today. And yeah, apologies yeah. for that. No, no, I, mean, I have before. Well, but, uh, <laughs> I'm just fascinated by, by where that could go or different ways of, of looking at things. Well, I, I, and it's interesting because I'm not, I'm not, I don't see it as political. I, I, I wasn't well blessed with teachers. I didn't like school and I left school earlier than perhaps I could have if I wanted to have a a serious career, although I ended up having a decent career. Um, but there was one teacher who said a throwaway thing to me in history once. I can't even remember the exact words, but we were talking about, I think, feudalism at the time. And he must have had some socialist views, I would imagine, and, and maybe even some communist views, because he was proposing and suggesting that these were just ages that we were going through, and the one we're in at the moment, who's to be arrogant enough and say that this is the best one we could possibly have? Now, I don't know what the next one might be, mm. in the same way that if I was in a feudal system, I wouldn't know what the next system might be. But I, I do suspect that we're on the cusp of, and I would hope that we're on the cusp of a new system that has some elements that are great from our current one, but but maybe has something more to offer than what currently does. It breaks through some of the constraints and the bad things that are, are in the current setup, the current yeah. system. I don't know what that is. I, I, my um, cynical side would say that we seem to be taking a step back in what I would expect it. And, and that might be um, a consequence of, <clears throat> um, you know, a consequence of doing that might be to escalate and accelerate a different system but you know going from interdependence to back to independence in the way that we have in brexit for example and don't want to be political on that one yeah. either but it seems to me a backward step from collaboration from working together from community to being more social to being more inclusive to be more diverse it seems to be contrary to that in my world and i don't understand it forget whether i'm for remain or leave i just don't understand it yeah and <clears throat> um I would hope that whatever the next system is, is more diverse, more inclusive, more interdependent, more collaborative in the way that it works. And that we get together with people and produce great stuff. And we do that for a time that's, you know, for a finite time, but has an infinite effect. Yeah, it, it almost feels to me like there is a new space that, as you say, may may come and draw on some of the great stuff and maybe it is market forces that create it maybe it is the millennials who who suddenly demand something different and organizations have to move to start filling it and those that don't uh, we're back to our question about who's going to be here in a few years time but in what you're saying there it does feel like there's this this new space of opportunity that 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 could create a world that works in a different way that does have that element of collaboration that you know does have the fulfillment you were talking about mm. earlier i would hope so i can't i can't see why it wouldn't be inevitable if you look back at history you know we've gone through many different systems in in the past and there's new ones surely to come i can't i can't see that we are that arrogant. And, and indeed, at this moment in time, there are several systems in play in the world, isn't there? There's not just yeah. one system. So I can't believe that we are that arrogant to think that this is it. This is, this is the best we can possibly think of. There has to be something else. So let's bring it down to the, the sort of micro level to us as individuals or as whatever <clears throat> position we hold within an organisation. Do you think there are things that individuals or leaders can do to make a difference to their little world around them, even if 
there's strange things happening in the broader world at the moment that maybe lead towards that change? Yeah, I, I, as you're thinking again, the ideas that are coming to me, the thoughts that are coming to me to respond to that question is, and, and it will come from a personal space, a personal bias clearly, is just don't accept what's happening at the moment. I think many people accept that that's the way it is and the way it's got to be, and will either work with it or work against it, whatever it might be. But they'll accept that that's what it is. It is that's what it is. I think seek to change. I mean, seek to change the way that you work, even if it's great at the moment. Seek to change it so it can be great tomorrow too. I saw a video. This you may have seen this video, and I blogged about it some time ago, and it's, it continues to get the best comments on it <clears throat> whenever I put it out on LinkedIn or on my website about the uh, a video that's been around on YouTube, in fact, there's probably several about the banana and how to open a banana. Have you seen Not seen it, no. Okay, so I wish I had a banana to show you this, but the banana, so I was, I don't know whether I was taught it. Mason, <coughs> on my desk, there is a banana. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there we go. So, thank you, Mason. So look, when I was younger, you. I don't know whether I was taught or whether I knew intuitively or thought intuitively that I open a banana there, right? Yeah. And it's the way it's presented to us most of the time, if you think about it, that's the way it hangs down. So you grab hold of it and you open it that way, right? <clears throat> that's not the way monkeys open it. They open it from the other end. So this end, I, like you and people listening to this, watching this, have probably opened it that way for many, many years, and that's okay. But sometimes I get pith, and that's really bitter, and it's horrible, and it's, it gets on my hands, and it gets in my teeth, and it's not a nice taste because it doesn't always open as successfully as that. Yeah. If you open it that way, it opens up dead easy every time, 100%. So for me, it's not about um, seeking to do things differently because you're not doing something very well. It's that there could be a different way that you're not even thought about, which is just turning that banana upside down and actually looking at other yeah. influences like nature, like you know, the next system might be in nature already for all we know. Who knows what it is, you know, bees or whatever. Who knows? Uh, yeah, I really like that. One of the questions we always ask our guests is how does change happen, which I know is a, a really big one, uh, but it's almost just to, like, from your perspective, what are those key bits that, that create change or enable change to, to manifest? So again, my thoughts as you were asking me that, which are not necessarily going to answer the question, but what's change anyway? Is it, is, we almost talk about change as a normalisation, that it's something that exists, it's got an entity, that it's got some, it lives and it breathes in some way. <clears throat> uh, but it's just something, is it, is it not just something um, that's changed in our environment in some way, whatever that environment might be, business or personal or life in general, something that's changed that could be by chance, by nature, or by purpose from someone else that has changed something. So if you move something over here, it will have some impact over here, even if you don't realise it. A bit like the butterfly flapping the wings yeah. in, the, in the forest, I guess. <clears throat> Um, so first of all, it's kind of what is change in, in that context? And, and it's not an entity for me. It's just the nature of the world, the environment continually moving and being not fixed. The world isn't fixed. It's changing all the time. In fact, from a scientific point of view, a physics point of view, I think entropy, you know, it's, yep. we're in a state of chaos and decline all the time anyway. It's just that we seem to have a, a need as humans to keep shaping and ordering that so as soon as we've ordered it something changes and we have to reorder all the time so it's it's, like, it's exhausting isn't it when we think about it is there a different way that we can maybe harness that change energy and and the way that we change rather than having to continually trying to freeze it all the time into a state of a steady state right <clears throat> rather than something that we just accept is always going to be changing it's it's a constant always has been I get a lot of stuff about change management at the moment is that, you know, that um, change is now constant. It's always been constant. Yeah. <laughs> the rate of change has accelerated, I would suggest, in the environment in the last hundred years. And things have happened that we wouldn't have thought of in the previous thousand years. So the rate of change has certainly accelerated, but it's always been there. So for me, it's just a continual reconfiguration of our environment 
And again, going back to what we were saying earlier, do we react to that or do we help to shape that in some way for a period of time? Yeah. And so if you were a leader or a, someone with change management in their job title, um, what would you do there? I mean, hear that sort of trying to harness it or I, I hear the, the metaphor of almost swimming with the river rather than against it. But what could you practically do if you do want to embrace that change and, and help guide it or, or move it? Um, I'd probably get rid of change management as a, a concept. Yep. Because I don't think you can manage change in that sense. I think you can shape your own environment to help match the environment changes around you. Um, and that is broader than appointing someone to be a change manager within the organisation and put a programme of events, which tend to be more transactional based rather than relationship based and I think the key for me would be uh, uh, whether it be 20 years ago or, or 20 years in the future is to put more emphasis on people than the transactional change the process change part of change management um, and to be very clear on what your purpose is what your new purpose might be or how you're going to achieve your purpose in this changing environment that's different to what it has been in the past and to spend more time engaging people in that and asking them and mobilizing them in their thoughts on how they can achieve that okay so i'd i'd, I'd probably widen it out to people yeah so i'd just like to you know looking at those people and how they thrive uh, and, and work within that or how you, you work with them. Just almost like one final question, really, while, while you're with us today. How do those people really get fulfillment at work? How, you know, what are the, the ways these are? Just to lob a small question in at the, <laughs> at the end of our conversation. Um, you know, where does fulfillment in work come from? What can people do to really feel that at a deeper level? Because I hear a lot of people searching for it these days. Again, I think well documented by people that are much cleverer than I is purpose is really important. <clears throat> and to understand you're working for an organisation that has something greater to offer than putting money in someone's pocket is seems to be really important. Mm. To be aligned to something or with a group of people that you have some sense of belonging to is is really important. That probably hasn't changed. We have a need to have a belonging, have done for many years, centuries, millenniums. So that sense of community, that sense of belonging, but with a purpose, I think is really important. So organisations that have very clear purpose that appeal to a certain population will have a workforce that I'm sure will be engaged and mobile and contribute towards that. Purpose itself, again, I kind of refer to Dan Pink's stuff, which really inspires me, is that the, the way I can express myself and get better at how I express myself, that mastery is equally important. So if I'm aligned to a business, I want to know that what I want to offer and what will excite me, I'm going to be able to provide value and get value back from mm -hmm. that organisation that's aligned to purpose. So those, those two things are really important for me. Mm -hmm. um, and... Again, Dan Pink, I can make some decisions. I don't have to wait for someone to make the decision for me. So I have some degree of authority to use the information and the competence I have and trust that I can do that in a way that's aligned to purpose. I like that. Thank you. Um, and I, you know, anything else that you can think of at the moment that you'd like to add to our research into change and anything we haven't covered today that is, yeah, is, is in the top of your head? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, nothing's reached to mind other than the word that's coming to mind is disruption. For me, that's quite on vogue at the moment. There's yeah. a lot of stuff around disruption. And, and one of the things that I, I believe firmly is that it's actually not new. Yeah. People have been disrupted and great people have been disrupted all the time. I think to look at change as how do we disrupt and continue to reconfigure, but know that you're never going to completely settle on one steady state, to always use that kind of disruption as a way to mobilise people, as a way to engage and inspire people, rather than thinking it was change management, which is pretty dry. And 
often fails rather than succeeds. So <clears throat> to engage in change in a different way, maybe uh, not relate to it as some entity on its own, maybe to think about it in a different way, maybe to talk about it in a different way, maybe not even to talk about change, but mm. talk about it in a different context. Probably not disruption because it's too um, too much of a buzzword at the moment, but, but something, some new relationship we can build with our environment that helps us be more successful in playing games. And the other one actually that springs to my mind is thinking about um, a great book I read some years ago. It was a bit of a mind warp book, but finite and infinite games. That sense that we're playing games all the time in organizations, in work, in life, in relationships, uh, meaningful relationships, is we tend to play games to win, play games to finish. Whereas perhaps the game will always be there. The game of life is always going to be there for as long as this world is turning. So how do we contribute to the infinite game that's already in play rather than thinking about how we extract value only for us? How do we win the amount of money that we can win or whatever it might be? What is it that we do to continue the game rather than complete the game? Well. Wow. I was going to ask you something else at the end of that, but that just seems like the perfect place <laughs> to leave our conversation. Um, Kevin, as ever, absolutely magical talking to you. Um, I know Mason and I, after this, will be having all sorts of conversations about how we run the organisation. We always do uh, after, after talking to you. So thank you again for your wisdom, ideas, opportunity and uh, your kindness. Uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, please subscribe. Uh, and if you're willing, take a moment to leave us a rating or review. This podcast is also video recorded. So if you want to see our guests in glorious Technicolor, please head over to YouTube. Uh, I believe it's youtube.com forward slash 91 Untold. But as with all our social accounts, just search for 91 Untold or the 91 Untold Change Project, and I'm sure you'll find us. Now, of course, this is intended as a project. So if you want to get involved in the discussion, we'd love to talk with you. Uh, please head over to Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn or Twitter um, and join the conversation. 